Well, if that doesn't get you back here at 7, I, I cannot help you. So, We'll be in the book of Matthew this morning, chapter 7, verses 13 to 23. If you've been with us, you, you know that we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount this fall, and we've carried it into Advent in uh, these last three, two weeks. It's our third week of Advent. Also, looking at the Sermon on the Mount in these last few sections in light of Christmas. And so I hope that that is something that becomes clear as we get into this text. But this will be uh, one of, 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 of two final sermons to finish this series. And um, uh, it'll be uh, interesting to see where Jesus lands here. And hopefully this morning we'll get a taste of it. Um, again, if you've brought your Bible, go ahead and open it to Matthew chapter 7. We'll begin in verse 13. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Well, let me pray for us and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would, by your Spirit, open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not, uh, that you would work a miracle in our heart by softening it to respond to your truth. Do this for your glory, we pray. Amen. This section and next section, next week's section, sort of fit together, and what Jesus really wants to end here with is to talk about what it means to know him. And uh, any um, word search of the word know in the Bible, as far as biblical knowing is concerned, uh, many of you are probably aware, is, is, is much deeper than just cognitive knowing. It's not knowing things about somebody. It's knowing the heart of that person such that biblical, biblical knowing and love, the unconditional form of love, agape love, are really the same thing. They go hand in hand. They, they uh, are, are two sides of, of, of the same coin, if you will. Um, if I think about uh, my wife Ada and just what it means to be married to her, right, I can know her and therefore want to do things for her because, right, that's what you're supposed to do in a marriage relationship, right, do good things for your spouse. Um, but sometimes, right, I can do good things for my spouse in order to get to know her, like right? things that she loves, and this helps me learn something about her. Um, but certainly, the more that I investigate those two things, they tend to kind of form, move together as it pertains to knowing who she is. 
But if I were to just do stuff for Ada, and I could, and sometimes I do, and, um, and ask her questions about herself, um, I could gather all that information. I could perform, right? I could go to the store. I could, um, you know, do stuff in the yard. I can do laundry sometimes, whatever it takes. <laughs> um, and, and really sort of put on this facade of we're in a relationship. We know each other. We're, we're doing things together. But I could do all that and never once give her anything about myself. And this is interesting enough as we get into it, the type of knowing that Jesus is essentially after, because it's the knowing that actually leads to being known that he's after as he enters this final section. Because the more that we know in order to be known, right? The more that I share my life, as it were, with Ada or open my life to Christ, something else, something, something happens that can't happen otherwise. I actually get to know the way that she or Jesus actually loves me because I have given them myself, for the better or for worse, the faults, the good stuff, everything. And what's pointed in this passage, certainly for Christians, is the last part, you know, how those that go to Jesus and say, didn't we do this in your name? And Jesus says, I didn't know you. That's the kind of knowing that he's talking about that we'll see in this text. It's not just the cognitive knowing. It's not knowing things about. It's not even doing things as we'll see for him. It's were you able to give your life over to him as well and be known? that he may be able to enter in, knowing your faults, good things as well, right? And you trusting him with that and being in relationship with him, that's what he's after. And that's what he's pointing his disciples to in this text. And so some of this is a little choppy. We, we, it looks like it's sort of, sort of popcorn statements of, of final things. But I hope you see a little bit of a theme here as we look at um, knowing the way of Jesus' kingdom. Look at, looking at knowing the fruit of Jesus' kingdom and then finally knowing the king himself. So those are the three things I want us to see with our time. Knowing the way of Jesus' kingdom. Do you know the way of Jesus' kingdom? knowing the fruit of Jesus' kingdom, and then knowing the king of the kingdom. So let's take that first one. Do you know the way of Jesus' kingdom? And what Jesus sets out to tell us and to tell his disciples is that the way of my kingdom is, is, is two things initially. It's easily missed, right, and it's difficult. Verse 13, enter the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus gives his disciples, and this is an imperative here, to enter into the narrow by the narrow gate. Um, what does he mean by this? What is he talking about? Well, every city in this day and age would, would, would have had or would have a main gate to that city. And it would be the largest gate because it was the main entrance to that city. It would also have the widest road, right, to accommodate and handle all the traffic going in and out of that city. This road would be easily marked. It'd be visible. If you weren't sure how to get from one place to the other, you, you might hear somebody say, well, just follow the crowd and go. So Jesus, Jesus chooses to talk about the road and entrance into his kingdom by contrasting it with what everyone would know of as what? The main gate, 
or we might say even the popular gate, the road that leads to any normal city. He does this, however, not to suggest that Christianity as we know it is some, in some ways is some hidden secret club. That's not what he's getting at here. He uses the contrast here in order to be honest with anyone who would choose to follow him. And by being honest, he's actually provoking his disciples to answer questions. And that's kind of also a feel as we land the plane here in this last section. He's going to give us some decisions to make as he's sort of been doing the entire sermon. But he's wanting to be honest here. Honest one that discipleship in this kingdom is not going to be the popular thing all the time. And I choose that word maybe for our young listeners, our young disciples here. It's not going to be the the most popular thing all the time. The narrow gate suggests not so much that it is exclusive, although there is an aspect of that, um, or or that it's, it's hidden. It's actually just missed. It's avoided, even. It's simply overlooked for something maybe more appealing, more comfortable as we follow the crowds. You know, when we think about all the things that you could be doing, if you're a Christian here this morning on Sunday morning, you could be sleeping in, right? That might be a broad road for what Jesus is talking about and what it means to overlook and just not even notice what it, with the entrance, the gate, as it were, the narrow gate that leads to his kingdom. Second, though, discipleship and following Jesus is going to be hard. Just stating the text clearly here, it, it, it's, it's the hard way that leads, though, to life, he says. And we can look back on this entire sermon and a little bit as a review and think of all the things that Jesus has mentioned thus far and, and list these hard things known as uh, being poor in spirit. That's not a popular attitude, Loving mercy, the way that Jesus instructs us to love mercy, not easy. Seeking to follow the law, not avoid it, create loopholes. Like really seeking uh, to live out the righteousness of the kingdom, not easy. Being extremely generous, what we heard about. Not lovers of wealth or money. Uh, Certainly that is a broad road in our culture today. But Jesus' disciples are called to not do that. They seek first the kingdom of God, not not, not their own kingdoms, not the things that they want. They do unto others as they would have them do unto them. They turn the other cheek, right? We could could go on. By any standard, that's difficult. That's a hard road. And we're not even getting at uh, the things such as uh, suffering and justice, which Jesus will go on to do. And we're not talking about persecution for those that just simply profess being a believer in Jesus Christ. Equally hard things to do. We also have exclusive claims here in this text that Jesus is pointing to. And what do I mean by that? Well, simply all roads don't lead to the same place. It's not a popular belief today in our pluralistic society. Only through this gate, Jesus will say, do you enter this kingdom? Do you enter into life? And we have echoes of John 14, 6, right, bubbling up in our ears when Jesus says, I am what? The way. I'm not a way. Not an option. He clearly presents an exclusive claim on Christianity, which is that only through him is life found. Jesus, is in, verse, Jesus in verses 13 to 14, though, more so than any other part of this sermon, if you'll notice, right, says, unless the path leads to me and through me, it is the wrong one. And for many, that's why this road is hard. 
For many, that's why this gate gets missed and overlooked. But there's a bit of counting the cost here as we enter this last section here for Jesus as he soberly reminds any who would follow him that the gate is narrow and that the road is difficult. And so Jesus' teaching in these verses is essentially asking his disciples and it's asking us, do you know the way of his kingdom? Are you prepared for what that might look like? The direction that that might send you? Because it is one that is often avoided and easily missed. My family went up to visit Philadelphia this past May, and we did some sightseeing, among other things. And when you're in Philadelphia doing sightseeing, you know, you got to go to the to Independence Hall. And that was one of the things on our list. And so we checked that out. And across the street, of course, is the Liberty Bell. Um, looked at that a little bit. Um, and just a lot of history in that little um, pocket of Philadelphia. Well, as we were walking back to our car, I, I noticed that just over down, you know, two blocks over, supposed to be uh, the grave site to one Benjamin Franklin. And I thought that was kind of neat. Let's go. I'm, I'm a, I like graveyards. Um, let's go check that out. And so we're walking, thank, thankfully, because of the GPS. And um, I'll just say this. If I didn't have my phone, and y'all are already aware of this, uh, I wouldn't have found the grave site. I don't find a lot of things without my phone, as you've noticed me talk about over the, the, the months. But I would not have found this gravesite, and, it's, and, it, and it stood out to me in the sense that here is what could arguably be one of the most important historical figures to the United States, signed the Constitution, signed the Declaration of Independence, right? a lot of, a lot of thing, interesting things about Benjamin Franklin for sure. We're not necessarily putting him up on a pedestal, but, but man, I mean, he's on the $100 bill. Like, what else needs to be said? Um, yet, if I didn't have my phone, I would have walked right past it. And it's interesting, I took a picture of this because he's right at the corner of this graveyard. There's a little bit of a, like there's a gate there that sort of differentiates it from the the brick wall. But still, there's no major plaque. There's a little plaque. There's no statue. There's nothing that's going to tell you, hey, here's that guy that flew a kite one day. And there was some electricity involved and a key. And, you know, like he's a major reason we have so many things that we have today celebrated in our country's history for sure. But if I had lived there, I would have driven past that thing a hundred times, maybe a thousand times. I could have lived there my entire life and never even known it was there. It's not hidden, but it is easily overlooked. And so it is for the way of Jesus' kingdom. And so he asks us, which road will you choose to follow? Right here are these questions. Which gate will you enter? But he's calling us to enter the narrow gate. One leads to life, the other to destruction. There's two choices. There aren't multiple choices here for his disciples. Which way will you go? Jesus calls his disciples to what is hard, to what is not popular, and what is often easily missed, saying, enter by the narrow gate. This is the way of his kingdom. Next, Jesus turns his attention, though, to the fruit of his kingdom. Look at verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous or extremely hungry wolves, and you will recognize them by their fruits. 
Contextually, we could say it is fair that Jesus has in mind scribes and Pharisees as he's talking about uh, wolves here. He's talking about sheeps, or excuse me, false prophets. Um, certainly, as he's describing the way of the kingdom, um, he has been differentiating his kingdom essentially from theirs in so many ways up to this point. Uh, but certainly, as he's talking about false prophets, I don't think it's unfair to say that this is who he has in mind, and he certainly moves out from here and the rest of his ministry to uh, be clear about what is a false prophet and what isn't. And, and he, this is one of the reasons he responds to the scribes and Pharisees the way, they did, the way that he does. But as I said, a lot of his sermon so far is set at differentiating uh, his disciples and his kingdom from that of the scribes and Pharisees or what was popular or thought of as religion even in that day and age. And, but we, we, we don't need to limit it to that. Right? False prophets are among, among the church today, and they do, but they do not necessarily carry the title Pharisee and scribe. So what, what does he want us to take from this? Well, two things are clear that I want us to see from Jesus' teaching in this section about f- false prophets. Uh, that, that is, whoever these false prophets are, they seem to, one, come from outside the community to God's people, and two, are difficult to spot. First, notice that Jesus says, beware of the false prophets who come to you, right? They come to you what dressed in sheep's clothing. This has in mind someone outside of the faith community, like the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day. And Jesus seems to be warning his disciples to be on the lookout. Well, second, though, we see that they're dressed like sheep, which is to say, oh, well, you're also not going to notice them either. <laughs> Right? They're dressed like sheep, which is be on the lookout, but you will not, you might not recognize them. As a matter of fact, you probably won't recognize them. And why? Because they will be acting and looking just like you. They blend in. And so they are difficult to spot. I don't know if you caught in the news this week, but um, Victor Manuel Rocca, 73, was convicted of spying for Cuba as a U.S. ambassador to Belgium and a member of the National Security Council for for over 40 years. Um, 40 years, y'all, nobody knew who he was. And why? Well, mainly because he looked and did all the things that U.S. citizens do and ambassadors do and, and members of the National Security Council do. In other words, even in places with the highest security levels, it is difficult to uncover those who come in as wolves, as it were, disguised as sheep. Interesting enough, if you finish in the article, how he got caught was by another wolf in sheep's clothing. One of our wolves. It says Rocca allegedly admitted his activities to an undercover FBI agent posing as a Cuban operative. Gotta love that. 40 years, y'all. 40 years. It is very similar, in a very, in a very similar way, Jesus is warning disciples that false prophets will come to you and it will be difficult for you to spot them. And while Jesus does not lay out, and this is why I sort of go in this direction, he doesn't lay out this elaborate plan for detecting or rooting out false prophets, he does give us a test. He gives us something to look for, and it is the, what? The test of fruit. And what we could even say is the fruit of Jesus' kingdom at this point, right? He says twice, you will recognize them by their fruit. And this implies two things, right? You can't disguise yourself, or sorry, you can disguise yourself, sorry. You can disguise yourself, but you can't truly change who you are. 
Which is why he says all of us are rooted in something like a tree, right? And those roots are feeding us. And whatever that is, it produces a fruit appropriate to what? Its own nature. This is what he's saying in verse 16b. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? There isn't necessarily anything wrong or evil or bad about a thorn bush. But what he is saying is, is that how do you know a thorn bush is not a grapevine? It doesn't produce grapes. It produces something else according to its nature. Thistles can produce lovely flowers, although they have thorns on their stems. But you would never see one produce a fig tree or a fig. Same with a false prophet, is Jesus' point. It simply won't bear the fruit of a disciple. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit, but it will bear something. It produces something according to its nature. And this is what he encourages us to look out for. A friend of mine has, uh, talks about an orange tree in his yard, and it produces the most beautiful oranges you would ever see. You would come to his house, you would see it, um, and you, you just want to go grab one. And he would say, yeah, sure, go ahead and grab one. Um, but they, the fruit of this orange tree is almost unedible. And they actually have a name for it. You might know it's called an ornamental orange tree for what it sounds like. It produces beautiful fruit that looks good. But inside, it's essentially rotten. It's almost unedible. The oranges, while beautiful, are simply ornamental because they taste so bad. And by nature, it will only produce this type of orange. And Jesus is saying something similar. He's saying false prophets, like they can disguise themselves. They can come across as somebody that feels and looks like somebody that, that, that is a true follower of Jesus, but they can't change what they are. And they are producing something, and you will recognize them by their fruit. But perhaps the most encouraging aspect of the fruit test is that you will recognize it in time. And that's, that's the instruction he gives you, time. You know, the, the Old Testament has a lot to say about identifying false prophets and what you're supposed to do with them, and it's not good. Jesus doesn't appeal to that here. And there's a reason for it, right? He doesn't give sort of this, this, this um, instruction that we should form committees to sniff out false prophets among us. Now, we need to have shepherds amongst the flock that know the flock and are able to care for the flock for that reason, and we do. But I, I think what, pointed, what, what, I, what I want you to get is there isn't this sort of— um, there's certainly a warning to the false prophets, but there isn't this—, this need for us to do something about it. And why is that? Because Jesus gives a warning in that passage, as he's been doing in the, in the previous one of judgment, to them in verse 19, saying, every tree that does not bear good fruit it, it is cut down and thrown into the fire. And what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about that capital J judgment that we looked at last week. The final judgment that God will judge, right? He will know who is false and who is not. He will recognize them by their fruit. And what fruit is that? As we get back to the point here, the fruit of the kingdom, right? Paul will talk about, Galatians 5, will talk about the fruit of the Spirit and love and joy and peace and patience, all those things. But I think it's good for us just to stop with what Jesus has given in this sermon. What is the fruit of his kingdom? Well, let's just start with poverty of spirit. You will know them. 
by their fruit. Which is to say, you will, know, you will know my disciples by their poverty of spirit, by their repentance, by their meekness, by their hunger and thirst for a righteousness that comes from me. They will be lovers of mercy. That's the fruit of the kingdom. They will be peacemakers. See, Jesus calls us to, not, not to defend our, our, our name, and as he's said before, of turning the other cheek, and even to defend, you know, just our honor. But in, in many ways, like, he is going to handle this. And while we don't stop being aware of these things, the question in many ways gets pointed towards us, doesn't it? What's the fruit coming out of your life as a disciple? Right, I'm, not, I'm not above. Like, you should be thinking, is Ryan a false prophet? I'm, I, hope, I hope in a healthy way you're asking that question. Come and test me. Come and ask me. Like, like demand fruit from me as your pastor. Move into community with one another that makes yourself known to be known as well so that examination can happen, that fruit can be pointed out. Because here's the thing that Jesus is saying about false prophets, at least at this point, is they do not love the things that Jesus loves. False prophets love themselves. They don't, they don't love Jesus' kingdom. They love their own kingdom. False prophets love you following them and their views on things that might sound or look like Jesus, but underneath it's just not. And why? Because it doesn't bear the fruit of the kingdom. The fruit that constantly says, this is not about me. This is about him. And so with this warning of judgment that God will handle it, Jesus is getting his listeners and he's getting us to both rest in that, but ask the question, one, what fruit am I bearing? But more specifically, what is that fruit saying about my own heart? And while it's not so much this immediate declaration of who you are as a Christian, it is a litmus test to wonder, okay, what is my hang-up with poverty of spirit? What is my hang-up with mercy? Because what we have done this entire sermon is, is, is where we fall short of those things, we are to run back to Jesus, aren't we? We're to run back to Jesus, the one who has what? Shown us mercy when we are struggling with giving mercy to others, when, when we struggle with admitting that we lack something, right? let us run to the law and then run back to Jesus as it crushes us, asking for a righteousness that comes not from ourselves but from Him. Again, it's all about Him. It's all about knowing Him, which is His point here. Yes, let's look out for these false prophets. I'm not forming a committee. I'll ask questions, right, if something seems off. But, like, one, your fruit will, show, will bear witness to you. But let me turn that on myself. What is coming out of my own life? And I would dare say Jesus offers that question to you as a follower of his. Do you know what fruit you're bearing? Do you know what that is saying about your own heart? Is Jesus the, the king that you are aiming to know? And this gets to the last point. The fruit of the kingdom 
as we just said, is producing, you might say, virtues and attitudes of the kingdom that come from the king himself. And this implies that we know this king, that we know the king of the kingdom we are serving. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, I will, I will enter. Uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Few verses, as I mentioned earlier, are as sobering as this one of Christians. And, and guess what? They should be. They should be. Sobering but not necessarily striking fear necessarily into your life. If false prophets seem to come from outside the people of faith, this next group that Jesus speaks of seems to come from inside the people of faith who practice deeds of righteousness in Jesus' name even and who are surprised to find out that Jesus did not know who they were. And so he says, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you workers of death. In verse 22, though, Jesus says three times that these people did these things, what, in his name. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name, yet Jesus will turn to them and say, I never knew you. What Jesus is saying, you need to hear this, is there's a type, as we said, of doing that is not connected to knowing. In other words, they are saying the right things, and they are doing what appears to be good things all in the name of Jesus, but they do not know the one of whom they speak of. But it's not just that, and this is what I alluded to at the beginning. Knowing someone is not a one-way street, is it? And that's Jesus' point here, and, and hopefully your encouragement as well this morning. Kingdom disciples know the king of the kingdom, but guess what? The king also knows them, not from a sovereignty level, but from a, I have come down from a human level. From a you have cried out to me level, as a dear friend would do to a dear friend, as a spouse would do to a spouse. It's not just knowing Jesus, it's are you also being known to him? which implies relationship. We can know things about our Savior. We can know things about Christianity. And in, there, and in that sense, right, we also see his, his reasoning with the, the false prophets. We can come in here and dress it up real good. All the Christian language, all the Reformed things, right? And never once know who he is, but also never once giving ourselves to him that he would know us. And friends, that's what he's after. And when he turns to these folks and says, I never knew you, that's why. It's because they never gave themselves to him. So yes, this is sobering, but it is not difficult. And I think that's what comes out in all of this. There's some warnings here. There's, there's some decisions we need to make. Right? There's, there, there, there's, there's clearly one of two paths we need to make a decision about. We need to be mindful of our fruit. And we need to be cognitive of the fact that we could be trafficking in Christian circles and doing Christian things, but never really know Jesus. Yet, the easy thing is the invitation is there for you to know him. Do you know this king? Does he know you? Ada and I uh, got into a little bit of a deep dive on Charles Dickens this Christmas, and she's kind of annoyed by it because I kind of took her thing and went a whole lot further with it, you know, when people do that. Um, but it all started when Ada said, you know, she's really excited 
she came in, she's like, we're going we're gonna to listen to a Christmas carol in my fourth grade class, and she's really excited about that. And I'm like, that sounds really interesting. I've always loved a, a Christmas carol. I haven't read it. Um, got it on Audible. Tim Curry is going to read it to me. That sounds lovely. Get me into the Christian spirit. So started listening to it, and man, it is rich. And some of you who have read it 800 times are like, yeah, we know. But it is so good. And this led to, um, well, Ada found this class that was being offered just on Dickens' Christmas Carol. And there's six lectures for this class. Uh, there's quizzes. Um, and so, you know, what she was sort of offering is something that she would probably do. This is where I stole her thunder. I, I, I just went all in on it. And I'm, I'm ta- listening to the lectures and I'm taking the classes and uh, taking the quizzes. I even got a certificate on my refrigerator that says I passed. And she's done with me at this point. Uh, she's over it. Um, it's been a lot of fun. I might even lead a small group on this, you know, who knows? Uh, Sunday school next winter, I don't know. Um, but look, if, if Charles Dickens were alive today and he walked in here and you asked him, Do you know Ryan Moore? <laughs> what would he say? No. Even, even just sort of thinking about it, like, look, how could he? I've read one of his books. And even if he was alive and, and, and we had the opportunity to, I've read one of your books. I took a quiz. I can, I can tell you how old he was when he wrote A Christmas Carol. He was 31, which sent me into depression <laughs> when I read that. And I could even say I'm ready to teach a Sunday school class on it. Does he know me? No. Now, if you were to ask Ada, my wife, does she know me? I hope she would say yes. Knowing the king is not knowing things about him. It is knowing him, what he loves, but it is also him knowing you. I'm sure Charles Dickens would invite me in for tea and we could have a relationship, but you get the point. What is keeping you from moving into relationship with Jesus in such a way that you would bear the deepest, darkest things to him because you know he loves you? As opposed to being content, just sort of staying on the periphery, right? Perhaps quoting different Bible verses, doing a lot of work for Jesus, saying things in his name. When he has come down, friends, in order for you to have a relationship with him, to know him and be known. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you didn't send your son sort of out of ill will or just take care of this problem so that I can go on with my life. You came And you sent your son so that we would know you more. And in return, be known. And my prayer for Wallace is that there would be none among us whom on that day, when we do cry out, Lord, Lord, you do not turn from us and say, I never knew you. You turn, you turn, and in spite of all the things, that, that, that we are so aware of and the things we're not aware of that are our faults. You look at us and you say, I still love you. And I've died for you. Come and be near. 
Would that be this place? Would you be merciful to us and continue the work of, of showing us the narrow gate, as it were, of producing the fruit in us that is fruit of your kingdom? And why? Because we, in fact, know the King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.